Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You all doing well? All right. Hey, I got three real quick things. One is uh, typically we love to send people out to the pavilion area to before and after services to connect and all of that. If you didn't notice, uh, because this side of our building is down, our young people are actually using that. Now, can you imagine trying to put 80 to 100 young people outside and keep them focused on attention? It's not the easiest thing. But when people, i.e. us, head out there and kids are running around, it just really becomes distracting. So if for, you know, the next few months, if, if we could try to stay away from that area, uh, that would just be really, really helpful to them. Secondly, for years now, uh, somebody, some buddies, I don't know, uh, and it's typically been with church, toward church staff, but it's getting bigger now, has sent out emails pretending to be me. They're kind of cryptic. And I don't know what's going on right now, but I think I've heard of 10 people in the last week that have gotten something from me. Uh, but you didn't get it from me. It's a scam, right? I don't need gift cards. I don't need help with something. I don't have a delicate situation, but I, I, I need you to reach out to. So if you get an email, first of all, you can always tell because they're usually from some Gmail account. I don't use Gmail. Mine comes from, if you get an email from me, it'll be direct. It will not be cryptic. And it will be pastor at dscchurch.com, right? So you can always check that email. But please don't, don't fall for that. I, I, it's, you wish people would take all their time and actually just go get a job, right? But I don't know. Um, but it's just been, it's crazy right now. Like I just heard somebody else walking into this service said, yeah, I got an email from you. And they fortunately had figured it out. But so if you get an email from me, it probably is not from me. All right. And then number three, we got baptism coming up. But I was talking to someone a couple weekends ago. Uh, they were talking about getting their kid being baptized. And I said, yeah, but you know, you can baptize them. And they didn't know that. And, you know, I think nowhere in the Bible does it say that some type of staff member or pastor has to baptize. It's about the family of God. So if you've led somebody to the Lord, or maybe you've been discipling someone, or as a parent, uh, you all want to, you know, baptize those that are in your life, we want you to be a part of that. So please make sure. Now, if not, we've got staff members here that'll do that, but just sign up, come be a part of the class. We'll tell you how to do it so you don't drown anybody, right? And it'll be good. Um, but really excited, but I think it's just so powerful to have the, the people in your life or the you know, people in the life of the person who's come to faith in Christ, who's helped get them there, be a part of that. So that's great. If you got your Bibles, we are in Revelation chapter 7. We're actually going to cover the whole chapter today. So there's a lot going on. I'm probably going to talk fairly quickly. So listen quickly. Let's read the text. After this... I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels 
to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. Are you getting a trend here? From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And these things, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the land clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne worshiping God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and honor and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, if you have not been with us, in chapter 6, we're introduced to the seven-sealed scroll. The seven seal scrolls, best we understand, legal document, what has to be accomplished in order to redeem the world back from the, the, the authority of the enemy to what God originally had created, which was to be under the authority of man, and now ultimately the perfect God-man, Jesus. And it's a seven seal scroll. And so the first six seals have been opened. That is in chapter 6. In chapter 7, though, we're going to take a little bit of a parenthesis. But to understand chapter 7, hopefully you were here last week. Jamie uh, was dealing with those last two seals. When, when you get to the end of chapter 6, what you have, after all these judgments that are coming upon the world, what you have is, is mankind reacting, knowing. It's not that it's just been a bad couple months or a couple years, right? It's just not, we're in the hurricane season and it will pass. They understand this is a judgment of God, but they're not willing to repent. In fact, if you go back to chapter 6, you see this, verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So instead of repenting, instead of humility, reaching out, asking for mercy, they, in their rebellion, they run. And they end with this question of who is able to stand? Chapter 7 actually answers that question. Who's able to stand? There's two groups of people he's going to talk about. There's group number one. There's 144,000, we're going to call them Jewish evangelists. And then there's a multitude which no one can number. So that's what chapter 7 is. So what you've got to understand is that chapter 7 separates the sixth seal from what we're going to see in chapter 8 and 9, which is the seventh seal playing itself out. Um, and it's answering the question, who is able to stand? <clears throat> now, here's the thing in the book of Revelation. This is pretty consistent with what we're going to see. That there's a linear timeline. We're talking seven years. Things are playing out. And periodically, what Jesus, through the auspices of John, who's writing this for us, is going to do is he's going to stop, almost like a parenthesis, go back discuss kind of some other stuff that's happening that maybe we we wouldn't have picked up any other way and then he's going to pick up and go on and then stop and do that again so when, for instance we have the first six seals chapter seven is oh by the way in the midst of all of this judgment and all of this wrath of god being poured out god is doing some other things which are absolutely incredible Right? There's a boatload of people that are coming to faith in Christ. And so that's chapter 7. He picks it back up, chapters 8 and 9. Then you get to chapter 10 through chapter 14, and he again says, now we need to prophesy again. There's other things that are going on here. And we're going to read about two witnesses. We're going to read more about the 144,000 Jewish preachers. We're going to read more about the Antichrist and prophet. So he's, he takes these times out. Then you get to chapter 15 and 16 and he picks up now the the bowl judgments and then he stops again and now he talks about religious babylon and economic babylon and some again stuff that's going on so chapter 7 is this take this step back in fact you can even see it here he says and after this i saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel arising, having the seal of God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm them until I've sealed. Well, let me ask you a question. We're six seals in. Have the land and the sea and the trees all been hurt by now? The answer is yes. So what he's doing is he's going back and saying, hey, at the beginning of all this, there's some other stuff going on that you need to understand of what's happening here. So the Lord restrains, in essence, the start of the judgment until these 144,000 evangelists are, are sealed. The wind, uh, so like if you, if you read through the Bible every year, uh, you're most likely someplace kind of that Jeremiah... Ezekiel place in the Old Testament right now. And one of the things that you see, especially in the book of Jeremiah, is the idea of coming judgment is described as a fierce wind. It's the storm of God's wrath that's coming. 
And so in the midst of this, God says, okay, I want to give you a picture of some stuff that's happening behind the scenes. And part of it is he's 144,000. Now, if I say to most people 144,000, most of the people think of Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Because they have this idea, they take from this passage that there's 144,000 people who get into heaven, and that's it. So you have to be kind of become one of the 144,000. And they get it from this passage. How they get it, I have no idea. Because they seem to, to just absolutely skip over. Then verse 9, Then I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. And where they are is in heaven. So that's where most people know about this, but they don't really understand it. Here's what's happening. We've talked about this in the past. God has a future for the nation of Israel. It's amazing to me how many Christians don't understand that. That God made promises to Abraham and to David and to the people in the Old Testament that have not been fulfilled, that he is going to fulfill. That's what this tribulation period is about. In fact, if you remember, we, we looked at Ezekiel 37, this prophecy that Ezekiel made 500 years, 550 years before Christ, that Israel would be scattered. They already were. When Ezekiel made the prophecy, they were already in captivity to Babylon. But that God would one day, in the last days, by the way, bring them and make them a nation again. From the time of Christ, Israel has not been a sovereign nation. They've been scattered. Yet 1948, even though it's never happened before in human history, where a nation has been taken, defeated, scattered, and they've kept their national identity and come back to their homeland and become a sovereign nation again, after 2,500 years, it happened to Israel, 1948. We would see that as that fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, the bones coming together, flesh being put on. But there's part of it that still hasn't happened, and it's found in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37. I will put my spirit within you. He's going to turn their hearts back to them, and you will come to life, and I will and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I the Lord have spoken let me ask you does Israel today if you were to go to the nation of Israel are they worshiping their Jehovah God the answer is no not most of them Israel is actually a very secular nation at this point there's a there's a hardness there in fact Paul even talks about this in Romans chapter uh, chapter 11 and again, I, I don't understand how you can read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and not understand God's got a future for Israel that's different than the church. You know, this, this what we call replacement theology, that somehow the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. And the answer is no, church is different. And Paul, to me, is just crystal clear. You get to Romans chapter 11, he says, I want you to know, brethren, and not to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And he's detailed that. They've rejected the Messiah, so there's a hardness that is there. And this hardening will happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. What's the fullness of the Gentiles? Ah, you go to Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 2. It is this time of the Gentiles when these great kingdoms represented by these beasts are going to be there, but ultimately Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom and bring the time of the Gentiles to an end. And that's what he's talking about, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel, so he's talking Gentiles and Jews here. This isn't, this isn't about the church all Israel will be saved. Well, when does that happen? This happens during the time of the tribulation. God is doing a great work. Israel's heart is being turned back to the Lord. So much so that here early on in the tribulation period, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists that now are going to be sealed by God to go out and to preach the gospel. It's another reason we know that this is not talking about the church here. You know, as the church, do we have tribes? The answer is no. I mean, unless you want to consider Baptists as a tribe and Presbyterians a tribe, but, you know, I don't think that's really biblical. The answer is we no, we don't have tribes. Who has tribes? Who has tribes is the nation of Israel. In fact, they're even listed here right 12 tribes now it's kind of interesting i wish i had more time on this uh, but it's an interesting question you know there's when you list the tribes of israel uh it gets a little confusing because jacob had 12 sons right but the tribes of israel are not the 12 sons because remember he pulled joseph out and gave him a double portion took his two sons ephraim and manasseh added them in the Levites, even though they are a tribe of Israel, they're kind of a 13th tribe, they didn't get land because God says, I'm your portion. They're the priest. But you read this list. This is a unique list because the Levites are in it. Joseph is in it. His one son, Manasseh, is in it. But there are two other tribes that aren't. It's the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan. And the question is, why aren't they listed? And that's a great question. I wish I had time to explore that a little bit. We don't know for sure. The best, you know, I did a lot of reading on it. The best, I think, explanation I could is you go back to God set up David, his son Solomon. Remember after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. When, when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was there. How did that happen? Well, a man by the name of Jeroboam from the tribe of Ephraim rebelled. Maybe perhaps that's why. Not only did he rebel, but he knew that they went to Jerusalem to worship God in the feast, that they'd want to come back to be a nation. So he made two golden calves, put one in Bethel, the other one, Dan. Dan's tribe was way up north. If you get to go to Israel with us sometime, we'll go up there. In fact, if you look at some of the, what's happening with Lebanon, uh, you'll even see on the map, right, Dan, Tell Dan. That's right where all that was. That's where the, where the altar was. And it could be that because they were the ones that led Israel away from the Lord and into idolatry, they're not mentioned here. But the point is, the angel seals them. He seals them, and I think the idea is for ownership. They belong to him, and also for protection. Because what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes? They're going to get his mark 
on their forehead or the back of the right hand. God now seals these. And what does he seal them with? Well, again, a little later on, we're going to get a little more information. Chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000, these same ones, having his name and the name of his father written on his head. It's not 666. They don't belong to the beast. They belong to the lamb. And with the idea here of protection, we see that, uh, again, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, if you remember, was in Babylon prophesying about the coming judgment to Jerusalem. And in Ezekiel 9.4, this vision he had, the Lord said, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of who? The men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are being committed. The ones whose hearts are still for me, put a protection over them so that when this judgment comes, they're not going to be killed. For instance, Jeremiah, when Nebuchadnezzar came and ultimately completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah was not killed. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar gave him his, his release. There was a protection. That's the idea. These evangelists are protected from these, um, these judgments that are going to come on the earth. Because we're going to see here in a minute the, the crowd that no one can number. Not so much. But for these 144,000, it's like protection. Think of, uh, think of the Passover, the blood on the door. So when the death angel comes, he sees it, right? It's almost like a spiritual bubble wrap. How's that for a picture? Right? Where, where the, the judgments that are coming, they are going to be protected. Why? So that they can go preach and take the gospel to the uttermost part. Again, just real quick, we'll get there. But why were they chosen? They were chosen because of their commitment to follow Jesus. You find this in chapter 14. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women. They've kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among them as the first fruits of God to the lamb. And no lie was found. Why were they picked? Well, they were, they're people, they're people who are fully following Jesus. Lord, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, whatever your word says, I'm, I'm going to walk in holiness. You know, today I was, I was thinking about it. It's so easy for us in our culture. We try to take the word of God and make it bend to what we want to do. Not these. It's just, God, whatever you say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk in integrity. In this time of chaos, we are going to walk in holiness. think those are the people that God looks to use. That's group number one. Who's able to stand? These 144,000. They have been picked by God to go and preach the gospel, to take it around the world. The second group then is this group that no one can number. It, it's verse 9. A great multitude no one can number from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne, clothed in white robes with palm branches. The multitude is made up of those who have come to faith in Jesus but have died during the tribulation. Why have they died? Well, we know some have been martyred. We also know there's going to be war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be pestilence, disease. 
There's going to be uh, peace is taken from the earth, murder. These are the ones who have come to faith in Christ, but they've died. And, and, and they're gathered there. Uh, one of the things that we see is people from every nation, tribe, people, tongue, right? That reminds us of what Jesus told us about the tribulation in Matthew 24. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, you know, a lot of times people say, well, hey, if the church is caught up before, how is, you know, is there not going to be anybody getting saved during the tribulation? No, it's the beauty of God in the midst even of his wrath, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of even equity. Our God is still a God of grace. He's still a God of mercy. He still offers the opportunity for people to turn to him and come to know his salvation. And his multitude worships the Lord and they praise him. And this is, this is so very good, this picture. Um, so he's asking, verse 13, uh, who, John, who are these people? And he says, Lord, you know. Verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is one of those beautiful pictures of Scripture. On the one hand, practically speaking, it's a picture that would make no sense to somebody who's not spiritually minded. Why? Because if you had a white robe and you wanted to clean it, you wouldn't wash it in blood, would you? It would come out stained. But their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, we know this. We understand it. That's what the blood of Jesus does. It forgives us. It cleanses us. I mean, even go back to Isaiah. His whole point here is this. For we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Right? So left to ourselves, that's who we are. Left to ourselves, in God's eyes, measured to him, there are none righteous, no, not one. That there are none who seek after the Lord. For all have sinned. That's what he's saying, right? Our garments, even though we're maybe trying to do our best, but when you compare it to God's standard, it's, it's filth. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. But God is the one who can fix that. I mean, Isaiah actually starts with, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And though red like crimson, they will be white like wool. That's what the blood of Christ does. That's why Jesus came. I mean, you think of Jesus as he's going to the cross in the upper room the night before. He says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many for what? For forgiveness of sin. I can make you clean. I can make you forgiven. Ephesians 1 puts it like this. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. These can stand before the wrath, the judgment of God. Why? Because they have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Peter put it so beautifully. 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, the blood of Jesus sometimes makes people uncomfortable, you know. I've, I've heard it called a slaughterhouse religion. Can I just tell you that apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Who is able to stand? Only those that have been washed in the blood of Christ. It's not those who are righteous in their own deeds because our own deeds are like filthy rags compared to the Lord. It's not those who go to church. It's not those that have good intentions in their heart. Who is able to stand? Those who have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. And so my question to you who are sitting here and to you that are watching online is, have you been washed clean in the blood of Christ? That's our only hope. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus said, there is no other way to the Father except through me. You've got to be washed in the blood of Christ. And the cool thing is, no matter what we've done and no matter what judgment we deserve, he stands there with grace. He offers us a salvation if we'll put our faith and our trust in him and him alone. Have you done that? John puts it like this in 1 John, but if we are in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter. He'll make it clean. He'll forgive. And I love, uh, so you get to the end of the book of Revelation. The vision is over. It's now just kind of some final thoughts to these seven churches that he's written to. And he comes back to this picture. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the city. All right, I'm supposed to be done my favorite piece of this passage is still here. This is the rest. So, you think back to chapter 6. Chapter 6, the fifth seal, verse 11. It's right, all these martyrs who have died for the name of Christ. And it says, and there was given to each of them a white robe... And they were told that they should rest for a little longer, right? I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna bring justice, just not yet. Just rest, rest. So, so what does this rest look like? Well, he answers this. Chapter seven, verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. But the lamb is in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. Will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, there's a couple things here. For, one, I should have mentioned, I should have put it up here as a point. I just knew I wouldn't have time, but I still want to make it. Um, you know, I, I think many, many Christians have this really bad theology of heaven. Right? What's heaven like? Because if you ask a lot of people, their idea of heaven is we're going to sit up on a cloud, strum on a harp for all of eternity. Now, if you like harps, you like clouds, 
don't want to burst your bubble, but that sounds absolutely miserable to me. That's not what we're doing. We're living life to the full. Did you notice what he said here? He says, and they serve him day and night. Do you know that we're going to work in heaven? But it's not the toilsome work that we do here. We're serving him. You know, obviously, you know, we talk a lot about this here, that we're supposed to realize that everything we do, whatever God calls us to do, whatever vocation we are, we're supposed to do it as to the Lord, right? But we sometimes get lost in just all the hustle and bustle in life. But there we'll know. Right? There it is. Amen. And so we get to serve it. There's going to be meaning. There's going to be purpose. There's going to be to our existence. There's going to be that satisfaction of accomplishing. The second thing that he says here, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. What an interesting expression. What's the tabernacle of God? It's, it's his presence. So these came out of this really chaotic world. But God says, I'm going to envelop them in my presence. Back in chapter 4, we saw some of the sights of heaven, right? The gold streets, the rainbow. We heard some of the sounds, loud voices. You know, the thing that I think will be most impressive upon us in heaven are probably not the sights and the sounds, but the feel. The feel. You have that magical place. Maybe it was grandma's house. For me, it's, there's a little lake in south, southwestern Colorado where I can just go and sit, right? And that, that feel of peace and contentment. God's going to envelop us in who he is. And I can't help but think of that passage in Exodus 34 when Moses was there and he hid Moses and he passed by and he announced who he is. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's the very essence of who God is. And we are going to dwell in his presence forever. His compassion, his grace, his mercy, his love. That's what we're going to live in. And these pe- I mean, we live in a crazy world now, right? These people died. You know, some of them died by famine. Some of them died because they, uh, they named the name of Christ. Some of them died in war. Some of them were just killed because that's all that's going on. But they are now going to be at rest in the very presence of God where there is no more hatred and no more war. And oh, by the way, we have no more need. They will hunger no longer. Yeah, some of them died of famine. No thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, right? All that we need. The Lord's their shepherd. Every piece of our heart will be fully content because he is our portion. (laughs) And then he finishes with that last piece. And God will wipe away every tear, right? No more sadness. No more sorrow. No more heartache. No more death. I don't know what you may be facing today, 
But I can tell you personally, life the last couple weeks is just, yeah, for me. Sometimes there are those moments, there's just not much joy. But folk, that's why we're reminded that this world's not our home. At the heart of the Christian worldview is we live for that day. There's a rest coming. The rest of heaven enveloped in the very presence of God with meaning and purpose and joy. Never again a disappointment. But it's only those who have been washed in the blood.